Amen. Amen. You may be seated, and if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to please turn with me in them um, to actually Luke. If you would, don't, don't go to Acts. I know it says Acts chapter 12, and we will get there, uh, but please turn with me to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. And in, per, in preparation for my sermon uh, this weekend, I ran across a, a quote by a man by the name of Andrew Murray. And he said that the man who mobilizes the Christian church to pray will make the greatest contribution to world evangelism in history. And I thought for just a moment as something was stirring inside of me as I read this quote, what if God would use me for that here at the well? What if God was, would use the well church here in Ionia in that way? What if God used the well church to impact Ionia through prayer that the entire county of Ionia was influenced by the gospel? Now, I'm grateful for leadership here in our church, men and women of God who hear from the Holy Spirit about what God wants in and for our church. And when those individuals come and say, Pastor, can I talk to you? I listen to them. I take into consideration the things that they say, and I seek the Lord over them. And I believe wholeheartedly that God wants to do something in this church regarding prayer. Something greater than than what he has done up to this point. Now, every major season of awakening in Christianity, whether that is in a church or on a college campus, or in a workplace. Every single one of those great awakenings has been characterized by intense, persistent corporate prayer. Every one. There there was a book that I just finished reading this week called The Path of Prayer by Samuel Chadwick. And he says this, it's going to come to the screen. He said, the one concern of the devil is to keep the saints from prayer. Our enemy fears nothing from prayerless studies and prayerless work and prayerless religions. He laughs at our toil. He mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. Amen? Prayer turns ordinary mortals into men and women of power. Why? Because prayer brings fire. Prayer brings rain. It brings life. Why? Because it brings God. Because it brings God. There is no power like that of prevailing prayer. And we've experienced a lot here at the well. Would you guys agree with that? We've experienced a lot here at the well. But I believe that God has more for us. And I'm not saying that this morning for some hype here in our service. But I really believe that God wants more for the well church. I really believe that God wants more for Ionia. I really believe that God wants more for our families. I believe that the Lord is showing us that it will not come apart from prayer. It won't. The history of missions is the history of prayer. And I am convinced that when we stand before God one day, we will discover that every soul ever brought to the knowledge of Jesus Christ was in some way related to intercessory prayer. And so let me ask you a really frank question this morning. What does your personal prayer life look like? What does it look like? 
D.A. Carson, um, theologian and, and author, says that if you really want to embarrass the average Christian, just ask them to tell you about their private prayer life. And that's one thing that most Christians are woefully deficient in. There was a survey taken recently in a prominent evangelical seminary. It was among students that were training to go on to the mission field in less than a year's time. And only 6% of a thousand people interviewed. 6% could testify to regular quiet times, times of reading scripture and devoting themselves to prayer. 6%. As I look at that number, I can't help but think that these people are supposed to be what I would call the spiritual elites. These are the people that God's taking into third world countries to minister to those who've never even heard of the name of Jesus. And only 6% of them admitted to reading the Bible and spending time in prayer. I mean, it would be painful and embarrassing to uncover the prayer life of pastors, much less Christians. But what if, what if God had a lot more for us? What if God had more for our school systems? What if God had more for our communities, for our families, but we never got it because we simply did not know how to ask? What if? Now, I can already see some of the squirming happening in the room, and I'm not going to point out anybody uh, who is doing it. But if if we're really honest this morning, some of us are kind of skeptical on the subject of prayer. Or we're just skeptical. Because because sometimes we see that we prayed and, and the very thing that we prayed for happened. Right? And then sometimes you pray and it didn't happen the way that you thought it was going to. And sometimes you didn't pray at all about a certain topic and you forgot to pray and it happened anyways. Right? Don't look at me like that. Like we're all pious in church this morning. Nobody's skeptical of prayer. The issue is there and it's prevalent in Christian circles. Sometimes we actually are just not even sure if the prayer that I'm praying is even going to amount to anything or if it's going to work at all. Is my prayer falling upon deaf ears when it comes to God? And I think the Holy Spirit has something really important for us in Acts chapter 12. And it's going to give us a snapshot into the the prayer life of the church. But before we get there, I want to start our teaching on this back in the gospel of Luke. Because the book of Luke and the book of Acts are really fit together as one. They were originally one volume written together by the same author. Now you have to think of Luke and Acts like a hand in a glove when you're reading them. In Luke, in the gospel of Luke, we see the shape of the divine hand in the very person of Jesus Christ. And then when we get to the book of Acts, you see the invisible hand of the Holy Spirit filling the church to do the work of God. And so teaching presented by Jesus in Luke is experienced and applied in the book of Acts. And the gospel of Luke presents us with what we would call Bible doctrine. Uh, Certain theological implications are pointed out for us, and in the book of Acts, we see the application of what we learned in the gospel of Luke. 
And so that's what you're going to see today, what Jesus teaches about prayer in Luke, we're going to see the church apply in Acts chapter 12. And so let's start out in Luke chapter 11. Let's look at verse number one. And it says, and now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Now stop right there. Because you guys are probably pretty familiar with this portion of scripture. How many of you know uh, what's going to happen next? Right? Many of you. The disciples noticed something in all of Jesus' preaching and all of his miracles. And they noticed that prayer seemed to be the focus of Jesus' life. Did you notice that the disciples didn't say, Lord, teach us how to do miracles? The disciples didn't say, teach us, Lord, how to write killer sermons that will engage people and give me some witty one-liners that will make people laugh. The disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray because they recognized that prayer was the very key to the power behind the preaching and the miracles. The whole entire teaching in Luke 11 and Luke 18 and Acts chapter 12 is about prayer for the power of the Holy Spirit. And in response to the request, Jesus begins to teach them the Lord's Prayer. Now, how many of you know the Lord's Prayer? Maybe not verbatim, but you know it, right? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You guys know that prayer, right? You guys are familiar with it? So Jesus begins to teach them this Lord's Prayer. And then he follows it up by a rather odd little story about a man who has an unexpected visitor late one night to his home, right? And this visitor is hungry, and the man goes over to the neighbor's house, and, and he wants to borrow some loaves of bread. And his friend was already in bed, and he was already asleep. And because that's what normal people do at midnight, they're in bed, they're asleep. And especially since people went to bed in that time frame when the sun went down. So around 7 or 8 p.m., people in Jesus' day and age would be getting in bed. And so midnight is literally the middle of the night for these people. And if you want to take it even a step further, this man comes over to his neighbor to ask for a loaf of bread in the middle of the night. And also in that same day and age, families slept together in the same room. All of them, husband, wife, kids, any extended family, they slept in the same room together. And so to oblige the request for loaves of bread, this man would have had to wake up his entire family his whole family. Do you, do you, how many of you have kids? Could you imagine waking your child up at midnight so you could give your neighbor a loaf of bread? That'd be a nightmare, an absolute nightmare. And on top of all of that, the man wasn't just asking for one loaf of bread. He was asking for three. I need you to please give me enough food to feed my family for several days. We see in the text a brash neighbor making a ridiculously excessive request at the most inopportune time. And yet Jesus says because of his impudence or, or in one translation his shameless persistence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Uh, the neighbor hands over three cases of Pop-Tarts to his other neighbor so that they can eat. 
Not because the man was his friend, but because of his boldness and his persistence in asking for the loaves of bread. I mean, Jesus goes on to tell us, uh, if you ask, it will be given you. If you seek, you will find. If you knock, it will be open for you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it is open. And those three verbs, seeks and knocks and asks, they reinforce the teaching that this was persistent. It's something that happened over and over and over again. And if you look at the original Greek wording, it is a continuous action that we see in the text. And I mean, it's not enough you see to ask one time. You keep on asking. You can see that in the image of, of knocking, when you knock on the door at somebody's home, you don't go up and knock one time and then quit. I mean, imagine if my wife and I were laying in bed in the middle of the night and we heard a single thud sound at midnight, we would assume that one of our children fell out of their bed. Not that somebody was knocking at their door because they needed something from me. I mean, that's how prayer for the power of the Holy Spirit works. Jesus says you have to ask repeatedly. But, but you ask this question because I did. I've heard this passage of scripture preached on probably 500 times in my life. And I ask and have asked numerous times, if God's will is to give the power of the Holy Spirit, then why not give the power the first time that we ask? Why do we have to keep asking? Because that's what Jesus teaches here. You have to keep asking. I mean, honestly, this teaching is so counterintuitive to our finite minds that Jesus had to teach this same topic twice before we even see it put into practice in Acts. I mean, Luke records Jesus teaching the same principle just seven chapters later. And this time, he gives a different and even more extreme parable than the one that we just saw. And he, held, he, he told them this parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and never lose heart. I want you to look at the screen and see what Luke says a few chapters later. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. And for a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Let me ask you a question. Do you have anybody in your life like that, that beats you down with their continual coming? Jesus says quite unbelievably that this is like praying to God. Now, I'm really glad, as I was studying this, I'm really glad that Jesus is the one that told this parable and that it was not me. Because comparing God to a cranky old unjust judge seems absolutely crazy and insane, does it not? I mean, who on earth besides Jesus could get away with such an analogy? And you wear down God through your persistent, incessant, and annoying asking. I mean, how is that not rude when speaking directly of God himself? And as I began to think and, and study out this passage, I'm like, man, Jesus wasn't talking about God that way. 
Uh, The point was not to compare God to an unjust judge, but to contrast him with one. I mean, even if an unrighteous, selfish judge will grant answers because of persistent asking, Jesus says, won't God, won't God who cares about you as his child, as, as, as a tender father, won't he give to us what we need when we come to him? Won't he? Won't he, won't he give to us the need if we persistently ask for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? I mean, God is, is not like the unjust judge. And a, a huge blessing to you this morning, you're not like the annoying old widow to God. He's, he's not like the neighbor and we are annoying him. He's the father. He's the father who cares so much about you that he spilled his own blood so that you could be rescued. I mean, the widow approached the judge as a stranger. But as a child of God, we're told that we can come boldly into his presence like beloved children. I mean, that, that woman had no right to claim in court. But we, we come boldly to the throne of grace because of Jesus, according to the writer of Hebrews chapter 10. And God says to us, you think I wouldn't help you? I bought you with my blood. I died for you. And since I have done the greater, will I not do the less? Your requests, church, are nothing compared to what God is prepared to give you. Nothing. I want you to look, though, at how Jesus ends Luke chapter 11. I want you to, not, don't go to the end of the chapter because the teaching changes. So I want you to go with me to verse 11. He says, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I've always thought that it was odd that Jesus used this moment to use the word evil when talking about us. Uh, Was was this moment just a gratuitous insult to the human or was it a reminder of our own depravity? Uh, Neither. It's neither of those things. Because most of us think of being at our best when we're with our kids. Would you agree with that? We're at our best when we're with our kids. But even at our best parenting moments, compared to God's love for his kids, we are evil. Even comparative. And that's such a beautiful, hope-giving promise for the believer today. Uh, We are precious like children to God. My kids, sorry, our kids, our kids are the one group of people that we will get up in the middle of the night to help. They are. If you call me in the middle of the night, I'm going to ask you how you got my number. If you show up outside of my bedroom window, banging on it to ask me something, you better be wearing a bulletproof vest. If my, if my wife wakes me up, j- just listen for a moment, because I'm going to be kind of real with you this morning about my own depravity. 
If my wife wakes me up in the middle of the night with a non-urgent request, I don't sleep well. I don't sleep well at all. If she wakes me up with a non-urgent request, I typically will not help her. Like, could you get me a glass of water? Are your legs broken? Are you sick? Are you dying? Then get it yourself. But our kids... Dad, I think there's a monster in my closet. Okay, let's go check it out. Let's go check it out. And so Jesus is saying, ask like the kid. Ask boldly. Ask shamelessly. Ask persistently. Now I want you to jump with me to the book of Acts if you're not already there or we're holding the place. Because now I want to pick up in the book of Acts and I want to see what we've learned put into practice. And it says in verse number 1 of Acts chapter 12, it says, And about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And, then, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And this was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him... He put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. And so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him. And if you have a physical Bible, I would recommend you underlining that phrase. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. He was bound with chains, with two chains. And centuries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side, and he woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off of his hands. Then the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done was by an angel, and it was real, but he thought that he was seeing a vision. In verse 10, when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hands of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy she said, uh, she did, sorry, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported what Peter was standing at the gate. In verse 15, they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept asking, is it an angel? But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him, and they were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. He said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. Now, I want us to see three important things this morning about prayer. The first thing I want you to know is that whatever they were afraid of, they talked to God about. Whatever they were afraid of. They were afraid for their future, so they talked to God about it. I mean, as I've been studying through the, the book of Psalms in my personal uh, prayer, prayer life, 
and, and time and really praying through the book of Psalms. And, and I realized something that I'd never seen before in all of my years of study. In the book of Psalms, we come across two different kinds of prayer. Uh, two two prayer, uh, prayers that we often don't recognize. Prayers that I'm going to call morning prayers and evening prayers. Morning prayers and evening prayers. Evening prayers are marked by praying your worries to God. Evening prayers. They're marked by praying your worries to God. And if you go to Psalm chapter 4, there's a beautiful picture there of what an evening prayer looks like. I mean, David commits to God the things that he's worrying about. He commits to God the people that are bothering him, the things that are making him angry and sad, all the while reminding himself of God's promises. But then you jump to the very next chapter, morning prayer. Chapter 5, Psalm 5, is the active petitionary prayer where you pray boldly against the things in the world that are not right. And you see both of them. You see both of them in the text. There's a sense almost of, of evening prayer where, where the followers of Jesus Christ are committing their worries to God. I mean, question for you. What do you do when you're afraid? What do you do? If you would develop the practice of evening prayer, it would give you such an incredible sense of God's peace. In fact, in Psalm chapter 4, it ends by David saying, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. David said, evening prayer helps you sleep. I'm talking to the one in that very moment whose arm controls the universe. I'm talking to the very one who said that no good thing would he withhold from those who trust him. I'm talking to the one who cares for me like a dad and knows when one single hair falls. I was going to say from my head, but that's not really the case for me. But he knows The evening prayer is talking directly to the one who promises to direct all of our steps and to lead us in the path of righteousness for his namesake. And so can I encourage you this morning as your pastor? I know nighttime is not always the best time for people, but I want to encourage you to take five minutes each night and start practicing evening prayer. I want to encourage you. This has been such a blessing to me in my life. For those of you who are a little closer to me and and know some of the struggles that I've had to walk through, nighttime is a bad time for me. It's an awful time, actually. I don't sleep. And in my tiredness, night is the moment where I have my anxiety, my worry, my fear. And at times, it's almost overwhelming, crippling. In those one moments, and things get blown completely out of proportion at one and two o'clock in the morning when I'm still awake. And my mind has been analyzing and overanalyzing and critical of everything that's going on. It's an awful, awful time. To any of our leaders here, if you ever get a call from me in the middle of the night and I tell you that you're fired from whatever it is that you're doing, just ignore it until the morning. I'm, I'm being serious. I'm serious. 
And I came to this place in my life where I came across these morning and these, these evening prayers and it's really caused me to rethink my entire prayer life. Instead of using my time when I'm getting up in the morning and trying to start a fresh day, instead of rehashing everything that happened the day before in my thought processes, I can go right to God and petition for the things that I see that are wrong in the world. And when I get home at night, God, take all of this worry from me that I've had all day. Take all the issues that came up. Take all the problems, all the fights, all the things that people said about me that I, I truly don't want to care about. Take it all. I don't want any of it before I go to bed because I want to lay down, like David says, in peace. And I want to find sleep because you lead me to safety, God. You lead me to safety. And now in this life, is it difficult still to do those evening prayers? Yeah, it really is. It's difficult but I want to say I talked to God about that. I'm letting him worry about it so that I can sleep and he's going to tell me what to do in the morning when I get up. And I encourage you, church, to take those moments of, of evening and morning prayers and to separate them. Because what do you find the church praying about all throughout the book of Acts? The mission. They're praying about the mission, about lost souls. How many of you in here know an author and retired pastor and theologian by the name of John Piper? John Piper, though I don't agree with all of his theological stances, he has some incredible thoughts when it comes to prayer. And he said that prayer is primarily for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. He says it's not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make prayer a household comm link to call upstairs for more comfort in the middle of the den. He talked to his church before he retired and he said that until you know that life is a war, you cannot know what prayer is for. He insisted over and over and over again that prayer was for the accomplishment of our wartime mission. And that's morning prayer. That's morning prayer. It's the active petitionary prayer. It's marked by boldly praying for the lost souls of the people in our circle of influence. It's boldly praying that our community is not led in ways that abide by our culture's understanding of, of wayward truth in their eyes. It's praying uh, that our children would understand the truths of God's word and that they would take hold of them in this life. It's praying that our spouse doesn't go astray it's praying on our knees every single day that we in our life would not refrain from seeking God and holding on to Him. We're petitioning God. We're interceding on behalf of other people. It's saying, God, I, I want to be rebellious against the status quo. The church knew that it was God's will for the gospel to get to the very ends of the earth regardless of what Herod wanted. They weren't sure how it was going to happen. They weren't even sure if Peter was going to live. He's locked away in prison. But they knew that God's purpose was to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so what did they do? They got on their knees and they said, Lord, make it happen. Lord, make it happen. 
John Wesley said that he was convinced that God did nothing except to answer in prayer. Nothing. And so church, what are your prayers like? What are your prayers like each and every day? Because I, I have stood on this platform in times past and I have lamented oh, before how the average Christian prayers actually sound to God. So often we fill our prayer life with, with cliche phrases and, and platitudes. And we spend most of our time asking God for things that he already promised that he would give. Like, God, be with us. But I feel like we say that and God's up in heaven and he's like, didn't the gospel already guarantee, the gospel guaranteed that I was going to be with you. I already, I already said that I wasn't going to leave you or forsake me. So, so please ask me something different. Ask me something more. And, and we spend our, our times of prayer asking God for things that really aren't supposed to be the main focus of prayer at all. I worked in youth ministry for a long time. Long, long, long time. I have a heart for teenagers still to this day. I have a heart for the generation that's right now, that needs to be impacted right now. And I heard, I've heard teen after teen after teen pray, Lord, help me take this test. Help me take this, this history test. Help me take this math test. And I think to myself, that, that's well and good. There's nothing wrong asking, asking God to, to help you. But I feel like God's up in heaven and he's like, why don't you just use the brain that I gave you? Why don't, why don't you just take the time and study and quit depending on me to transmogrify information into your lazy brain? And one that I know, I know, I know that I have addressed. And this may sound humorous to you, but at church, I'm trying to help us to understand something. Prayer is so much more than platitudes. Lord, bless this food as I'm eating a one-pound cheeseburger that's topped with bacon and, and onion strings. And God's like, why don't you go eat broccoli? It's got built-in blessing already there for you. Lord, give us travel mercies. Like, what is that? Honestly, well, what is that? God's like, put on your seatbelt, drive the speed limit, stop texting while you're driving. Those are your travel mercies. I'm not, not saying that there's never a place for these things, church, but, but do you get the point? Do you understand? We are to spend the most of our time praying for the advancement of God's kingdom in the lives of our families and our community and the world around us. Piper's quote, until you know that life is a war, you will never know what prayer is for. And so church, they used prayer like a wartime walkie-talkie and not a domestic intercom. They used it like a wartime walkie-talkie, not a domestic intercom. And I wonder if we have lost sight of the very fact that God has given us the opportunity to come boldly before Him. I was telling the prayer team earlier downstairs, well, we don't have to go to some other man or woman to intercede on our behalf. We get to go to God. Jesus made that possible. 
Do you guys remember after the death of Jesus, it said that the veil had been torn, it was rent, it was ripped in half? That gave us access to Jesus. That gave us a moment where we can cry out, Abba, Father, please help me. Lord, please. And yet we waste so much time. The the third point that I just want to give to you really quickly as we begin to land the plane is that the, the early church, they were, per, they were persistent like the widow. They were persistent like the widow. Don't you see how they illustrated what they learned in Luke chapter 11 right here in the text? Uh, they knew that it was God's will for the gospel to go forward. And right now, they're in the middle of, of a real problem in the church. Their main leader, James, has just been killed. He's been killed right in front of them. And now one of their other leaders is in prison and is about to be killed. But they, they know that it's not God's will for Satan to destroy the church. They know it's not God's will for Satan to impede the church's progress. And so they get on their knees and they're like, God, you have to make something happen. You have to intervene we're not going to let you go until you open the doors. We're not going to let you go until we, we see the blessings of our effort. We're not going to let you go until, Lord, we see our enemies overcome. And they kept at it and they wouldn't give up. I want everyone to look up here for a moment. Don't write. Get off the phone. Uh, look up here for a moment. Do you know that you know that you know that you know that it is not God's will for Satan to destroy your family? Do you know that? Which leads me to this next question. Is Satan destroying your family? Are you allowing Satan to destroy your family? I mean, I I know that there are times when God directs us away from specific requests. But in general, we give up way too early in our prayers. Charles Spurgeon said that some fruit you have to keep shaking down from the tree until it falls. Sometimes you have to keep asking God, Keep calling to God, saying, God, I know you're there. I know that you care. We're specifically asking for the power of the Holy Spirit through our prayers. That's what we're asking. We're seeking God for. That they prayed in, in the text like the needy neighbor. They prayed like the wearisome widow for God, the good father, to give. And man, did he ever. There's a, a, a story here at the end of chapter 12 that shows us several twists of irony in Scripture. Peter, who is Herod's prized prisoner, he walks out underneath Herod's nose on the night before Herod plans to please the Jews by killing Peter as well. And then there's this little story tucked in at the very end. So I want you to look with me at verse number 20. 
It says, now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came with him or to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. And on the appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting the voice of God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last breath. And the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Every time the church really prays and acts, things happen. Every time. In Acts chapter 1, they they pray in the upper room for 10 straight days and the Holy Spirit comes and Peter preaches and 3,000 people get saved. In Acts chapter 4, they they pray and God fills them with such boldness that they turn the entire city of Jerusalem upside down. At the end of Acts chapter 5, the the church of Jerusalem is over 10,000 people in a matter of just a few weeks. They saw some of the biggest and the most harshest critics of the church converting to Christianity and getting saved, including Jewish priests and even Paul, one of the largest persecutors of the church himself. And here in Acts chapter 12, they pray and God blows up a prison and strikes down Herod, their persecutor, with worms. And in the very next chapter... The church will pray again and God will raise up Paul to be a missionary, the greatest missionary this world has ever known. And all of those things happen because of prayer. Again, so let me ask you the question, how is your prayer life? How is your prayer life? Do you do morning and evening prayer? Because I want to challenge you in two ways. Challenge you in two ways. I want you to prioritize prayer in your home. Prioritize prayer in your home. Every opportunity that you have, we should be praying. Praying with our spouses, praying with our children. Praying when we start the day, praying when we end the day. We should be communicating with the Lord, amen? And then I want you to get involved in prayer here at the church. And you say, well, I already pray for the church. That's great. I want you to actually show up here on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. and pray with us. I want you to show up. Right now, we're currently meeting downstairs in the prayer room, which is right next to our fellowship area. And there's going to be some new things that are going to be happening in the weeks to come that will give you a greater accessibility to prayer. But I'm, I'm challenging you as your pastor to show up here on Sunday mornings to pray with us. To seek God, to to get God in prayer. Charles Spurgeon said near the end of his life that the prayer meeting was an institution which ought to be the very precious thing to us. To be cherished very much by us as a church, for to it we owe everything. He said that when our comparatively little chapel was all but empty... Was it not a well-known fact that the prayer meeting was always full? And when the church increased and the place was scarce large enough, it was the prayer meeting that did it all. 
When we went to Exeter Hall, we were a praying people indeed. And when we entered on a larger speculation of the Surrey Music Hall, what cries and tears went up to heaven for our success. And so it has been ever since. It is in the spirit of prayer that our strength lies. And if we lose this, the locks will be shorn from Samson and the church of God will become weak as water. On one occasion... Before his death, a visiting American pastor came to Charles Spurgeon's church. And he, he pulled Charles Spurgeon aside before the service started. And he said, he said, what is the secret to your success? And Spurgeon took the man downstairs into the basement, into a room. There were 300 people praying. And he said, this is my engine room. This is my engine room. Church, that needs to be us. I have a confession to make to you this morning. I don't think that I have led you well in this area as a pastor. I, I'm going to just admit it right now. I, I don't think that I have led you well. We, as a church board... And as a, as a prayer team, um, we, want, we want to, moving forward, do our best to create opportunities to pray. Not just me praying at the end of the service or, or one of the young ladies up here praying um, at the end of us singing a couple of songs. Nothing really replaces you becoming a person of persistent prayer. Nothing replaces us becoming a church of persistent prayer. Nothing replaces me as your pastor than becoming a person of persistent prayer. I'm not standing before you telling you that we've made this grand mistake so that we can all huddle up and tell each other that we love each other and then depart from our ways and never do anything about it. I'm telling you because we can't move forward in the mission that God has for us without persistent prayer. The life of a Christian should resolve or revolve around persistent prayer. And so I'm going to ask you to get out of your seats this morning. Not, not to get alone with the Lord. I'm going to ask you to, to get into groups of people. And we're going to start praying for our families. And we're going to start praying for our community. We're going to start praying for, for God's kingdom to be advanced. Because we need to intercede on behalf of people who, who need it. And so I'm going to ask you now um, to get into small groups of people in this area, and this is how we are going to close out today. And I'm, I'm going to just throw this, I'm not, not, not a warning out to you. Um, there's going to probably be more often than not days where we end in moments just like this. Amen. Moments where we're saturating um, the mission of God in prayer. And so at this time, please go. I will close us in prayer in just a few minutes. And then I'm going to just ask that after I do close in prayer and send you 
uh, that this space remains in an attitude of prayer uh, following the service. Any conversations, um, I'm going to ask if you would just step out into uh, the foyer um, and have those conversations as you leave today. So at this time, you can go ahead and get uh, into groups um, and begin to pray.